Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider a story that's been captivating readers for almost a thousand years, the legend of Merlin and King Arthur. The idea for today's episode began with a mystery. In 2019, a librarian at Bristol's Public Library in England discovered scraps of parchment from a medieval manuscript pasted into the bindings of four Renaissance books. The fragments were written in Old French, but the librarian recognized the names Merlin and Arthur. And so he called in a local scholar to find out what was going on. It turns out that the scraps were part of a 13th century Arthurian legend manuscript, written less than 50 years after the original King Arthur story that most of us are familiar with. What did the fragments say? How did they change our understanding of Merlin and King Arthur? And how did they make their way from France, where they were written, to a library in southwest England? A multidisciplinary team of scholars was able to answer these questions using a combination of brain power and cutting-edge technology. It is a fascinating story, and I had so much fun learning about it. Oh, me too. Our conversation with one of those scholars, Dr. Laura Chuhan Campbell, changed the way I think about Merlin and the story of King Arthur entirely. And it might change yours too, listeners. So just a word about Laura before we get started. She's an assistant professor in the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at Durham University and a member of the Institute of Medieval and Modern Studies. Her research interests cover medieval French and Italian literature, particularly the area of cultural adaptations of literary texts. Her first book, The Medieval Merlin Tradition in France and Italy, Prophecy, Paradox, and Translation, examines vernacular translations of the story of Merlin in French and Italian medieval literature. Now, she's one of three co-authors of The Bristol Merlin, Revealing the Secrets of a Medieval Fragment. We started by asking Laura to describe the fragments of manuscript and how they were discovered in Bristol's public library. Here's what she said. So my colleague Leah Tether is a professor of English at Bristol University. She got a call from the librarian, Michael Richardson, at the Central Library in Bristol. Um, He'd been looking through some old Renaissance books and looking at um, paste downs, which are basically fragments of old medieval manuscripts that were pasted onto the inside of Renaissance books. Medieval manuscripts were made of vellum, which is basically treated calfskin. They were essentially leather, the pages. So they were extremely durable and quite valuable material, even after they stopped being used as manuscripts. So as we see a gradual transition from manuscript culture to print culture between the 15th and 16th century, we start to see older manuscript pages, usually pages of books that were no longer in use and were just being used as waste material, um, bound into the front of these Renaissance books. The reason for that is Renaissance um, early printing paper was very fragile. They didn't use wood for it. They used a kind of pressed textile, which um, created this paper that was very, very fragile. Whereas the 
covers of the books were made of wood, so they were quite heavy, which is why they pasted down old bits of manuscript into the front to protect the paper. So in almost all Renaissance um, printed books, you find bits of manuscript, but they're often nothing particularly interesting. So you get bits of liturgical texts or accounts or, you know, material that has a shelf life. It's very unusual to find um, a vernacular text, that is a text not written in Latin, used as a paste down. And the librarian at Bristol Central Library found these, saw it was in French, he saw the names Arthur and Merlin in it and thought that this was potentially something interesting. So he got in touch with Professor Tether, who's a longtime collaborator of mine, we worked together a lot. And she was also at the time the president of the international British branch of the International Arthurian Society. So Professor Tether identified it as an Arthurian text, as eight pages from the Histoire de Merlin, the story of Merlin. And she got in touch with me and we identified the text further. And we decided to work also with Dr. Benjamin Pohl, who's a book historian, um, to translate and edit these fragments as well as to tell the story of the fragments not just as a piece of text but also as a physical object to trace how it got from a bookshop in um, 13th century France all the way to being a paste down in a renaissance book in Bristol Central Library. And what was it like for you the first time you saw and touched these documents? It was really really exciting I mean I know as a medievalist, I get to look at manuscripts quite a lot. Not as much as I'd like. A lot of it's online nowadays, but um, it's always really, really exciting and really special to see them in real life. It's especially special to see one that we assume hasn't seen the light of day in over 100 years. Mm. We have a record from 1899 where the book was catalogued and recorded as having a French you know, a French manuscript at the front, but clearly the person who was doing that didn't really see any interest in it. So, yes, yeah, something no one's looked at for 100 years, something, you know, that had possibly been sat there unnoticed for even longer than that. It was so exciting. And I just love working with manuscripts. They're just such fascinating objects. How important is this discovery? Does it change anything about how we think about Merlin and the Arthurian legends? So the actual text doesn't tell us a great deal. There's a very minor detail which is different to other manuscripts. I mean, just to give a little bit of context, medieval manuscripts, as you can imagine, were copied by hand before the invention of the printing press. But each manuscript was copied with ever so slightly minor differences a lot of the time. Um, there was no such thing as copyright. Scribes were under no real particular obligation to copy the text exactly as they saw it. Some did. Some copied it with perfect accuracy. Some of them changed things. They made mistakes. Some of them even edited it and made deliberate interventions. So every medieval manuscript that we have is ever so slightly different. Mm -hmm. This text, we have two separate redactions. This one is part of the shorter redaction. It doesn't necessarily give us many new details about the story other than a slightly cleaned up version of um, Merlin's interaction with his lover, Vivienne, um, where a sexual reference to her um, writing a magic spell on her groin is um, changed to her writing a magic spell on, on a ring. So the groin, obvious <laughs> reference for genitals, right? Right. So, and so much more fun, the groin, than the so ring. So much more right? interesting. We don't know. I mean, it might be because the word for groin in Old French, in, spelled A-I-N-E-S, 
is not too dissimilar from the word for ring, anel, A-N-E-L. So it might have been a mistake somewhere. You know, sometimes these things are copied by human beings, right? So they, they make mistakes all the time. Or it might be some prudish scribe who's like, well, I'm not writing down anything to do with women's genitals and, right. and changed it to ring instead. So that's the only real difference we have in the text. What's really interesting is it tells us about the history of who was reading this text and how it was transported um, from France to England. Can you tell us the story of how you and your colleagues were able to track their path from France to a library in Bristol? So we, because we've all got different specializations, we all worked with the manuscript in different ways. Personally, my work was working on the transcription and the edition of the manuscript. The manuscript is um, very, very heavily damaged, unfortunately, because it was pasted down into the front of a book. Mm-hmm. You know, the page was pasted down, we think, in the 19th century. Someone unpasted it when they were cataloging it and changing the um, the spine of the book, so for conservation work. And that pulled away quite a lot of the ink. So it was my job to reconstruct the text, essentially, using what I could see from the text, um, using also a control manuscript. As I said before, all the manuscripts are different, but we do get distinct families of manuscript that have very similar redactions. So I had to link it up to a specific group of manuscripts, find a control manuscript, so one that had the closest text. And then in the bits of the text that I was completely unable to, and of course I did this with Leia as well, we would both puzzle over half-formed words Mm. and, you know, kind of like damaged sections. That was fun and frustrating in equal measure. Sure. (laughs) Um, So it was my job to kind of insert the text from another manuscript in bits where the text was completely irretrievable. We also um, worked with Professor Andy Beebe at Durham University, who has created this multispectral imaging machine for reading manuscripts. And what that does is it's able to see the... um, I'm not exactly sure how the machine works, but it it can take (laughs) photos. (laughs) It's not my area, but it can take photos that show more of the trace the ink would have left than you can see with the naked eye. So that was really helpful as well, because sometimes you only need just that little bit of an edge of a, a letter and it reveals the whole word to you. While I was doing that, and I also translated the text as well, Dr. Pohl was going through looking at the handwriting and dating the handwriting, looking at the ink, looking at the physical book itself and what it it could tell us about the date and the way it was used, about the marginal annotations. Um, At the same time, Professor Tether was looking at the history of the book. So she was using kind of annotations on the cover to find out about who the owners had been, where it had possibly been bound how it had ended up in Bristol Central Library. So we were all looking at the manuscript from different perspectives. It's amazing to me how quickly all of this came together and how many people had to collaborate to get it done. The fragments were discovered only two years before the book about them was published, and Laura said that analyzing them required scholars with knowledge of history, book history, bibliography, paleography and codicology, literary studies, philology, and translation studies, not to mention that fancy spectroscope. 
Yeah, it is incredible. I love the story too about how they figured out how the pages got from France to England. It was all based on one tiny bit of marginalia. Someone wrote, my God, in English in one of the margins. Based on the handwriting, experts dated that to the early 14th century, which means the fragments made it to England within 80 years of being written. Laura said that one little comment, my God, may have been a little nothing, handwriting practice or just the scribe testing his quill to see if it was sharp. It's amazing. And the puzzle aspect of this story is half the fun, for me at least. Finding those tiny clues and seeing how they fit, it reminds me a lot of A.S. Byatt's book, Possession, which is one of my all-time favorite books. Oh my gosh, that book is one of the ones that has been on my, Julie, you have to read this list <gasps> for so long. And I, I just never have. Oh my, that's, you have to, you would love, love, love that book. If you're about to ask me whether they made it into a movie with Gwyneth Paltrow, the answer is yes, but the movie sucks and the book is great. That was not what I was going to ask you, but that is good to know. I was going to ask you, isn't A.S. Byatt the sister of Margaret Drabble, and didn't they hate each other? I have no idea. This is the first I've heard of that. Yes. A.S. Byatt is sisters with Margaret Drabble, and they're both brilliant, and I really like Margaret Drabble. <laughs> and I'm just <laughs> looking at the, There's a Slate article that's uh, titled, A Narrative of Jealousy and Bafflement and Resentment. Two Ooh. gifted sisters, a domineering mother, and one of the greatest literary feuds of English lit. I think I may sense a future Book Dreams <laughs> episode. <laughs> oh, what a great idea. But I, I had read Margaret Drabble first. <laughs> so mm. I had, so you had this sense of loyalty, like exactly. you can't read. Oh, I can't right. like A.S. Buy It. Yeah, you can. The book is so good. <laughs> okay. It's so right. good. Yeah, well, I'll give it a chance. Okay. Well, the other half of the fun for me was learning more about the original King Arthur stories just in general and how different they are from the versions we know. We started by asking Laura why she thought those stories have never lost their appeal to readers. And here's what she said. So the story of King Arthur, it was initially incredibly popular in the Middle Ages. We get the first stories about Arthur emerging in writing in Latin in the mid-12th century um, from Geoffrey of Monmouth, although they've quite possibly had earlier oral precedents that obviously we no longer have evidence of. Um, they, you know, there was a, a huge amount of productivity in Arthurian stories um, in the 13th century. And then they continued to be popular really up until their revival in the 19th century, the sort of revival of, of interest in the Middle Ages and medieval culture and art and literature, really created a, a new vision of King Arthur. So often our, our modern depictions are based more on, on Tennyson and 19th century imagery than the original medieval texts. I think it's endured because um, on the one hand, it's a national myth. In the Middle Ages, that wasn't necessarily the case because there was no such thing as nations, really. Kingdoms, medieval kingdoms didn't quite have the same um, sense of identity as they do now. But when it was revived in the 19th century, it was brought back as a kind of British national myth. Um, Arthur is a British national hero, which is why a lot of people are very surprised, actually, when you tell them that the original stories were all, you know, mostly written down in French. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, I think our, our fascination with the Middle Ages continues nowadays, and Arthur and the Arthurian story is very emblematic of that. 
for us, it really encapsulates the stereotype of the Middle Ages. It's got knights and ladies and queens and dragons and witches and all those sorts of things that, you know, fit our stereotype of the Middle Ages. And also that, you know, they're great stories. They're fun. Yeah. Who doesn't want to be the weakling who pulls the sword out of the stone? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, has a best friend who's magical. So you can probably tell from what I'm saying that Julie and I don't know, we don't know a huge amount about the Arthurian legends. You know, I think we've both read the Mary Stewart books. We've read Once in Future King. I think I've seen the Disney movie, you know, that kind of a thing. But the more I was researching the origins of these stories and the early versions, the more excited I got about our conversation. So I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit more about the origins of these stories. You mentioned Geoffrey of Monmouth, um, and there's also Robert de Bourgogne. Yep. Tell us a little more about their work and how it gave rise to the stories we know now. Before Geoffrey of Monmouth, we only have very fragmentary references to a warlord called Arthur. We have some Welsh poems that clearly come from an oral tradition that also reference the figure of Merlin. But these weren't initially you know, related in any way. These were clearly separate stories. It was Geoffrey of Monmouth who brought them together and who really brought the Arthurian story into the history of Britain. So Geoffrey wrote a Latin chronicle um, in the 1130s. And this Latin chronicle basically went through all the kings of Britain, one of whom was Arthur. Merlin appears before the birth of Arthur as this sort of strange child who can see the future, <laughs> um, who is apparently the son of a devil. So the Geoffrey of Monmouth story was translated into Anglo-Norman by Robert Was. And at the same time in the 1100s as well, we start to see French stories, um, you know, French songs and French poems emerging around the Knights of King Arthur. So this is where we see the emergence of um, figures like Gawain, Lancelot. We see the story of Percival mm -hmm. and the story of Merlin. Um, first got really developed by Robert de Boron in the early 13th century, we think around 1200 or so, um, possibly Robert de Boron, the, the authorship is disputed. And he tells the story of the Holy Grail. He takes it from the story of Percival and develops a backstory for the Grail, which starts at Christ's crucifixion. The Grail is the, the cup that is used to collect Christ's blood, and then the Grail gets transported to Britain. And then in the next branch of it, Merlin is born as, um, he's initially an antichrist, he's the son of a devil, mm -hmm. but God saves his soul and tries to redeem him by giving him the gift of prophecy. And his job then, Merlin, who is, you know, he's omniscient, his job is to make sure that the Arthurian knights find the Holy Grail. You know, I think along the lines of Vivian being way more interesting printing on her groin instead of on her ring, mm -hmm. original Merlin, the Antichrist or the son of a devil, so much more fun. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, know. he was fun. And didn't you call him a creepy little boy in an interview somewhere? <laughs> I did. Yeah, he is a creepy little boy. So when he's born, he's precociously, well, I mean, he's magical because his father is a devil and God has given him the gift of prophecy. So he has these magic powers that are consistent with what people thought devils could do in the Middle Ages. They knew everything in the past and present, but not the future. That's the domain of God. But of course, Merlin has that additional power. They can manipulate nature. They can summon other devils. So 
Merlin, when he's born, is able to speak immediately as a, a tiny baby. So convenient. I know, right? Well, he actually goes on to defend his mother in court because she's um, she's been put into prison because she's had a baby out of wedlock, which the story tells us was illegal at the time. Not in real life, but in, in the fictional world. So she's in prison. She gives birth to Merlin, who can immediately talk, and he defends her in court and gets her successfully acquitted. But of course, he can change shape. So he never really is one particular shape for very long. He can transform into an old man or people of any age, people of any status, which is interesting as well. It's so interesting. I think we need to bring back more of the original qualities of Merlin into current (laughs) current versions. (laughs) So I actually have a teeny tiny sliver of understanding of early modern demonic texts. Um, My son is currently spending the year translating a late 16th century exorcism text, Italian exorcism oh, wow. text. Yeah, yeah, super fun. So I have just enough of an understanding to know that these demonic texts were more than just religious texts. They also served as vehicles used by the church to advance a political agenda. Do you think that was the case with the Merlin story? It certainly was in Italy. In the French Merlin stories, oh, and in England as well, of course, I'm forgetting about Geoffrey of Monmouth. So in the Geoffrey of Monmouth story where, um, so of course, you know, the story of um, King Arthur was meant to have been in the fifth century. So he starts then doing prophecies about, you know, present Anglo-Norman Britain in which Geoffrey of Monmouth was writing. And these prophecies are very political. So it's this interesting technique of backdating prophecy by rooting it in a fictional past. But of course, when you move that into a political context, it means that criticism or political angles can certainly be interpreted in one way, but not in such an obvious way that they can leave the author open to criticism as well. And this was taken on especially in medieval Italy. So The translations, they insert a lot of prophecies by Merlin, which are talking about the conflict between the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. There's a lot of criticism of the papacy, of the ecclesiastical establishment, all of these in kind of obscure symbols that can be interpreted just clearly enough to make the criticism clear. We've been talking about how medieval and earlier versions of the Arthurian legend reflect the political realities of their times and and cultural aspects of their times. What do you think modern versions of the story reflect about our times? Oh, interesting. I would say, as I kind of mentioned before, it it ties into stories of obscure origins, of of great figures coming from obscure origins, Mm. which is something that, you know, was a very common narrative in the Middle Ages, but we still have it today. So we see it with Harry Potter. We see it with Luke Skywalker. It's a very pervasive myth that's survived to the present day. We also have the, you know, tragic stories like um, Lancelot and Guinevere and Tristan and Isolde, the whole kind of star-crossed lovers story. We still have stories like that to this day. Yeah. It's interesting to me that over time, we've lost a lot of the juicier details. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, the 19th century versions that a lot of our modern narratives are based on are very sanitized. The original Arthurian stories are way more violent. There's way more sex than you would have thought. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably what made them so popular, you know? Yeah. Do you have any modern versions of the legend that you particularly like? 
I enjoyed Bernard Cornwell's version because he he obviously does, you know, a lot of historical research. He sets the story in kind of 5th century Britain, so it bypasses a lot of the um the sort of 19th century medievalism of it. He uses a lot of characters from the original texts, like Welsh folklore and stuff. I can't remember what the trilogy is called, but the the first one is called The Winter King. And then if people wanted to read an early version with all the unsanitized bits, are there ways to do that for for non-academic people? Yeah, there's um, loads of great translations out there. I would start with either Marie de France or Chrétien de Troyes. With Chrétien de Troyes, I would recommend Yvan and the Knight of the Lion, which is a great story about a knight who has a pet lion. Who doesn't want to read that? Oh, yeah. Perceval is a really good one as well. And also Lancelot and what was the other one? Eric and Enid is also quite good. So these, these they've got a lot of action. They've got all the typical elements of medieval literature, but they're quite, I would say they're pretty engaging for modern readers. Um, and also Marie de France is, is great as well. Something like Guichemar is a great story. I also like uh, L'Enval. Marie de France's are more, um, they engage more with the sort of supernatural Breton folklore. So you have things like knights transforming into birds. You get more kind of dragons and fairies. So yeah, I would, I would recommend Chrétien de Troyes and uh, Marie de France. We'll link to all of these books in the show notes, of course. But Julie, I think you and I may need to plan for a wet, hot summer of Merlin and King Arthur. I really cannot wait. When I was a kid, I went through a phase of reading modern versions of the Merlin and King Arthur stories. I couldn't get enough of them, but I had never even heard of the series by Bernard Cornwell. So obviously I left that world too far behind. I'm so excited to revisit that feeling of enchantment. And who doesn't need more enchantment in their lives? I certainly do. And I loved learning more about a story I've known all my life. I mean, who knew Merlin was an antichrist? I didn't. No. Right. I didn't either. It's the best, right? And the other thing Laura told us about Merlin is that according to Geoffrey of Monmouth, he's responsible for Stonehenge. He created the stones and he ordered a bunch of giants to transport them from Ireland so they could stand in their current location in Salisbury as a war memorial. He was always my favorite Arthurian legend character. So now I love him twice as much. Yes, me too. I'm already dying to know more about Vivian too, the Lady of the Lake. Can you imagine what we might find out about Guinevere? In the words of a 14th century scribe, my God. And that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Laura on Twitter at C-A-M-B-I-E-C-H-O-O. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and